The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host, and it is my delight to join me in the studio by Zoom today, C.R. Wiley. Chris, thank you for joining me. Uh, it's, great. Uh, it's great to be with you, Zach. Chris Wiley is the pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church, PCA, in Vancouver, Washington. He's married to Marla, and they have three children, and as of very recently, one grandchild. Pastor Wiley is the author of several books, including Man of the House, published by Whiff and Stock, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, published by Canon Press, a junior novel entitled The Purloined Boy, available from Cannonball Press, and a forthcoming book, also from Canon Press, on the mysterious Tom Bombadil character from J.R.R. Tolkien's Legendarium. He's written for a number of print and online magazines, including Touchstone, Modern Reformation, Sacred Architecture, The Imaginative Conservative, Front Porch Republic, National Review, and First Things. Today, we will be discussing a lecture he gave at the recent County Before Country conference hosted by East River Church in Batavia, Ohio. The lecture is called, rather simply, The Boniface Option, and it presents a view for how Christians can engage in our contemporary culture. And Chris, this is where I want to start with this. Where do you get this title, Boniface Option? Who is Boniface, and why is he significant for church history? The, the answer to the question, I guess, should be broken up in a couple of parts. One, uh, the host of the event said, why don't you talk about the Boniface option? I said, okay. <laughs> so that's where the idea for it came from. Although uh, I don't think he claims uh, ownership, and I certainly don't. I've heard other people use that term. Uh, it's uh, referring to uh, a missionary, a uh, Anglo-Saxon missionary in the 8th century who evangelized amongst Germanic peoples in, you know, what we refer to today as Germany and the Netherlands. He's actually the patron saint of both countries. And uh, it refers uh, to his work, but uh, really uh, narrowing things in on a particular incident, it refers to the act of cutting down Thor's oak uh, that uh, Boniface uh, is, you know, sort of celebrated for. And uh, so the the act of cutting down the oak was a, a kind of power encounter, very uh, similar to what we see with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, um, or even, um, you know, Gideon and, uh, you know, the uh, Baal uh, and Asherah, uh, I think it's the Asherah pole that, anyway, uh, from Judges. And uh, so those two incidents in scripture uh, are echoed in this uh, incident with with Boniface, and it's a fascinating story. There's legends that have uh, developed around the event, but we actually have the letter that Boniface wrote to Pope Gregory II describing the incident. So uh, we actually have the, that that document, which allows us to kind of you know dismiss some of the legends that uh, developed around the incident. But uh, anyway, that's the story. When I saw it, the first thing that came into my mind, other than the cutting down of Thor's oak, I was familiar with that narrative. The first thing that came into my mind was Rod Dreher's Benedict option from a few years ago that really made waves in uh, in the evangelical Christian world and just the Christian world more broadly, discussing how is it that we can engage with culture when culture is becoming alarmingly more and more 
anti-Christian and adversarial against kind of even just history and, and how we've understood history in the West. Can you summarize Rod Dreher's Benedict option uh, that you're kind of riffing on here, at least in the title, or that you're responding to? You know, what, what exactly is the relationship? Yeah, well, yeah, that's definitely the case. And I, uh, I'm friends with Rod, you know, and Rod and I have talked about uh, his book. And uh, he's gotten a lot of pushback, uh, I think, uh, some of it unfair. Um, he, uh, evangelicals aren't the only people who have pushed back. I was actually at a uh, conference or a, a meeting of the Academy of Philosophy and Letters. That's an organization, an academic organization uh, that I, I serve. Uh, I'm, on, I'm on the board of it. And we had Rod in uh, a few years back to talk about the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the Benedict option. And all of the criticisms that you might associate with the evangelicals were, were you know, there in the room uh, and accusations coming from, believe it or not, traditionalist Catholics <laughs> of uh, sort of withdrawal and disengagement and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think uh, Rod, uh, Rod's book, uh, you know, it, the title of it is he's riffing on something himself. It uh, comes from Alistair McIntyre's book, After Virtue, I think, was, which, which was originally published in 1981, which tells you something about, you know, the foresight of philosophers. Philosophers generally... Uh, either see the ship being steered or steer the ship. And when you steer a big ship like Western culture, it takes a long time for you to actually turn. <laughs> but, you know, so there's kind of a delay between action and reaction. So uh, the stuff that we see going on in our culture today, you know, as, um, you know, we, we see with different books, uh, you know, uh, you know, in terms of how, how our culture is, has been, I guess, interpreted, goes back a long, long way. And, and so the things that we see happening today have, uh, you know, their origins, you know, you know, well in the past, but, um, what, what the, what McIntyre is saying or, or encouraging us to think about is there's going to be a point in which Western culture has, um, really, uh, in its present form and institutions become irredeemable. And he's pointing to the fact that this occurred in the empire. Uh, at, there was a certain point where people said, okay, we're done investing in the institutions that are so corrupt and moribund that, they, that there's no hope for them. We're going to build new institutions. We're going to just kind of start again. And, uh, you know, he points to St. Benedict, uh, you know, the father of modern monasticism as an example. Now, the thing about Benedict that's great to keep in mind is Benedict didn't set out to preserve Western culture. <laughs> that, that wasn't Benedict's plan. That wasn't, but uh, as an unintended consequence or sort of a, a benefit, uh, we uh, see that you know people who followed his option, you could say, uh, did help us to preserve Western culture. There's there's a great book, uh, How the Irish Saved Civilization. Uh, you might be familiar. I see you nodding there, Zach. Yeah, Thomas Cahill. Yeah, right. And uh, it's a it's a marvelous book. Again, d demonstrating that the primary objective for those Irish, uh, you know, uh, clerics and so forth wasn't saving Western civilization or Europe. It was preaching the gospel and you know and promoting the Christian faith. And in the process, they preserved uh, you know the learning of antiquity and uh, actually encouraged people to read stuff that wasn't explicitly Christian but had to do with kind of classical civilization. And 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 so uh, we owe them a great debt 
not only for the work they did in, in the church, but also what they did for us culturally, more broadly speaking. And this is what Rod is, is, is trying to get us to think about. Now, my, my, uh, my address on the Boniface option is not intended to supplant or replace what Rod said. It's more to supplement it. And uh, so I can talk a little bit about how they work together, but that, that was my intention. Yeah, well, I, I would like for you, and it might be obvious to our listeners who are already familiar with Boniface and with Benedict and with, with Rod's book and with uh, McIntyre's work, they, they, may, they might already have this kind of gap filled in, but uh, very simply, how is the Boniface option fundamentally different than the Benedict option? You say they're not opposed to one another. You're not trying to supplant uh, Dreher's work. Uh, are they at all complementary, or, or if they are, how do they fit together? Yeah, I think they do complement one another. I think um, what Rod is talking about is building new institutions. And what I think I'm trying to say with the Boniface option is we need to precipitate kind of an existential crisis with modern people. We need to get them, uh, we, need to, we need to disillusion them. And uh, disillusionment is what Boniface, you know, was promoting. He, you know, there are people who uh, were suffering under the illusion that Thor's Oak and worshiping uh, you know, Norse gods was really uh, a good thing. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, was not only just their cultural sort of, uh, you know, outlook, but it, it was actually kind of a, uh, uh, well, it was a false, they, they were living with falsehoods. And what Boniface helped to do with cutting down Thor's oak is to demonstrate to them that they couldn't trust these Norse deities to protect them uh, if they couldn't even protect their own tree. And, uh, you know, be, you know, a, a source of, you know, help and blessing and just practical, you know, sort of, uh, uh, well, inspiration for life, uh, because these things just weren't, weren't real. So that's what uh, Boniface helped to reveal. It was an apocalypse uh, for the, the people who were present there to witness the cutting down of the tree. And Boniface, you know, had a crowd. It took a while to cut that tree down. It was a big tree. Um, so, and he had opposition. There were people there who didn't want him to do it. So he was, you know, taking his life into his own hands at that point. Uh, by the way, he was martyred later on and um, uh, in, a, in a different incident. But uh, I, I, when I bringing that up, I'm just, you know, trying to demonstrate that this wasn't just some kind of, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, show. You know, the, the, this, was, this really was a risky thing to do. You know, if people didn't uh, harm him then, they could harm him later for, for what he did. So anyway, so the act was intended to reveal the emptiness of their religion and worldview. Now, and, and that doesn't, like you said, that doesn't supplant or cancel out the Benedict option approach of building new institutions and, and even uh, having strategic retreat in order to, to build up a base of operations. But it's, it's kind of like the Nehemiah picture of you have the trowel in one hand while you're building, you have the sword in the other to, to stave off attacks or even to go on the offensive if you need to. Um, when, when I hear you describe the Boniface option in that incident with Thor's Oak, you know, martial words come to mind. It's about attacking. It's about dismantling. You use the word disillusioning um, the wastes of idolatry in order to clear the ground for something new and fruitful. And from our perspective, something distinctively Christian. 
because as soon as Boniface put that axe down and the tree came down, he, he picked up his Bible and he began to preach the gospel. But if you've ever worked in construction or hardscaping, I know you have, Chris, you know, in a job that requires demo work to make room for new structures, you know that, um, that it's, you know that um, you're dealing, that it's best for you to know <laughs> what it is you're dealing with. Uh, that, that's tough to say, but you and I both know that you need to know what you're dealing with in terms of what needs to be removed, what needs to be dismantled or destroyed. So let's talk about idolatry. We've talked about Thor's Oak and uh, in the Germanic peoples. What idolatry does the Boniface option need to address in our current culture and society? Or to put this in other words, what is of ultimate significance to most people today as reflected in our politics, media, education, and so on? And, and, and why is it problematic for Christians as we try to build new in infrastructure, try to build new institutions? Why do we need to you know, go after that? that idol at the center of our culture? I, I think a couple thoughts quickly come to mind. One, which uh, is a departure from my address, but was in the back of my mind when I was doing, you know, uh, you know, the work on writing it, is that uh, uh, you, what you just described is deconstruction. And we've had, uh, you know, the uh, painful experience of having, you know, Christian civilization deconstructed over the last couple of hundred years or more. And uh, the, basically the, you know, sort of a approach that a lot of uh, apologists have taken is basically this, well, you've got a point there, but we think this is still sound. Oh, you've got a point there, but uh, we don't think you have anything, you know, negative that you could say about that. You know, and uh, what we've seen happen is that you know, sort of the edifice of our civilization has has been undermined in lots of ways and in ways that, you know, Christian apologists uh, just didn't anticipate even being possible. Uh, for example, you know, someone like Nietzsche, you know, has undermined, you know, the, the ethic of love in the Christian faith, uh, maintaining that it's just kind of slave morality, that, that uh, what, what we have with with uh, Christianity is just kind of power politics, but the politics of slavery that has kind of, you know, sort of bound the way we think about life and ethics and so forth. So that's been under attack. Language, the way we, we talk and uh, how we understand language and how it works, that's been under attack. We used to think in terms of language having its origin in the Lagos of God, Christ himself, and therefore having a transcendent source uh, and that's comp been completely cut off. We see in the church a lot of the language games that we we have going on with, you know, uh, gender and with, uh, you know, even, you know, you know, sort of ethnic relations reflects now in the church a kind of approach that's fundamentally non-Christian. We, we, people who are promoting, say, social justice in Christian circles are not actually drawing on the Christian understanding of language. They're actually drawing on very consciously, uh, deliberately, on, on, a, on an approach to language that has no Christian basis. So there's been a lot of deconstruction that we've been subject to for a long time. What we need to do is go on the offensive and deconstruct uh, the idols of our world. And there are three things that I pointed out that weren't intended to be exhaustive. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm pointing at is really the, the kind of the heart of the modern or postmodern experience and not sort of uh, things that are happening on the periphery. So, you know, there are a lot of folks who get, you know, sort of worried and upset about things that are coming out of the New Age, uh, the New Age movement or, 
you know, the ecological, you know, sort of the world of ecology with sort of deep, you know, ecology and skia and all that kind of stuff. That's all peripheral. That's, it's all interesting and we need to address it. But at the heart of any culture is the cultus, you know, the thing that gives the culture its, you know, uh, its sort of core values and ways of sort of building its, its in itself, it, it, it's, its uh, you know, civilization or culture and its self-understanding. And the three things I, I addressed were naturalism, scientism, and Gnosticism in the course of my talk. And it might seem like those things don't go together. Maybe people can see, oh, I can see how naturalism and scientism go together, but where does Gnosticism fit in? But I do think that all three of those things are at work in popular culture, in government, in law, uh, in education, uh, throughout you know, the Western world. And so we need to attack those things. I want to come back to the three isms because um, the way you you weave them together in your address, and I didn't hear the address, but I, I read the manuscript, uh, the way you, you wove them together really does make it clear how they are interrelated. I want us to discuss that. But uh, talking about the tactic of a Boniface option, as you're describing, if we're going to go all in on that option, we need to realize that the idolatry doesn't just grow up out of the ground like Thor's oak did. No, it's more complicated than that. Um, there is no, you know, physical pre-existing thing uh, to which we can point out and say, that's naturalism, that's scientism, that's Gnosticism. These are, you know, man-made factory or uh, idols. And as Calvin says, the human heart is, in fact, a factorum idolarum, a factory of idols or a manufactory of idols. And like Gideon, we need to tear down man-made idols, as you mentioned him before. So what does Scripture say about man-made idols and their human makers. Uh, just a little primer here on, on that. What, what, what scriptural resources can you bring to bear to the conversation? Think about, you know, uh, a couple of passages of Romans, you know, 1, you know, 18 and going forward, Paul addresses the, 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 the matter of, uh, of idolatry and uh, the preference for the creature over the uh, creator and also the suppression of truth uh, because the knowledge of God brings to mind things that sinners just simply don't want to have to think about, <laughs> don't want to deal with. Um, you know, he, he's discussing this within the framework of, you know, idolatry as it was practiced in the first century, but the principles are still sound and apply to our world today. So the very practice of, of suppressing the truth, uh, because the knowledge of God uh, it promotes, you know, self-knowledge, the knowledge of ourselves. And this is Calvin's argument in the Institutes, is that uh, we don't want to know about ourselves. We don't want to know, you know, things that we wish were not true. So uh, rather than recognize the creator uh, to whom we owe worship, uh, we in, in, instead invent things that we uh, say are the true explanation, we say are the true explanation for our origins and uh, to whom we owe, you know, worship. And all these things are creaturely in character, and Paul gets into that in, you know, you know that chapter. Um, but uh, in our world today, we've done the same thing, but in a more, I guess, abstract and sophisticated way with naturalism. We, 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 we're saying that there is no creator, there's no one to whom we really owe, uh, you know, worship. Uh, we're the products of a vast and accidental mechanical process. And consequently, 
there is no one to whom we direct our worship, especially at a, in a public way uh, with the force of law at a cultural level. Um, instead, uh, it's just us, you know. And uh, then scientism, you know, uh, is, uh, is what follows from that. Now, science and scientism need to be distinguished. Um, science really is something that could not have come into being without a Christian culture within it, you know, within which it could form. You know, there are certain convictions that we have as Christians about the rationality of the universe, uh, its purposefulness, and uh, the ways in which the creation reflects the glory of the creator. So early scientists were very pious and and in, in how they approached the scientific enterprise, looking for reasons to praise God even more because of you know their appreciation for his handiwork. Today, though, science, scientism um, is the narrowing of the range of inquiry to just physical phenomena, and and in the spirit of logical positivism, saying that anything that lies out of that you know, sort of sphere of physical, uh, you know, phenomena. It's just wishful thinking or, or at best something that uh, can only be apprehended on a private basis personally uh, and consequently can't be, you know, recognized as being public truth and, and you know, a basis for, for law. So this has happened in the West um, as, un, you know, a set of unintended consequences uh, as you know, science, science and, the, and the growth of sciences has developed. But anyway, so so that's how scientism relates to naturalism, and uh, we can still be scientists. I, I have got a number of Christian brothers who are, you know, physicists and working in all you know uh, different uh, institutions that I I, I respect and, and they're first rate, you know, sort of world class, world class intellects. Uh, when it comes to the physical sciences, and they're also dedicated believers. So there's no either or with that. It's when we say this is the only source of knowledge that we get into trouble. Yeah, I mean, it it assumes or presupposes the naturalistic dictate that anything that can be known is, in fact, material and and pre-existing material, I guess, by necessity. And so science, and the hard sciences in particular, based on observation and um, and testing and and manipulation of materials and and and, and other you know other things like that um, you know that that becomes then epistemologically the only route to knowledge and that conviction which is in fact itself a metaphysical uh, commitment right. that is what scientism is that the scientific inquiry scientific process is the only route to knowledge and it, and, you know, necessarily, you got to throw history out the window. You have to throw out the legal prospe- uh, process, everything other than maybe like forensic kind of legal analysis and investigation. And you have to, you know, throw out all other kinds of ways of testing claims and that, that people make in the world today. And then that will lead us inexorably to Gnosticism, which I think ties into this next question. And this is a little bit of a, of a stopping uh, a point on the way to the final destination, uh, this question here, how does idolatry, generally speaking, relate to virtual reality? You make this connection in your, in your lecture. You don't get into it all too deeply, but it immediately 
uh, struck a nerve with me because augmented reality games and experiences, virtual reality, that's basically what augmented reality is, it's becoming wildly popular now. We've even had several movies that explore, you know, life in augmented or virtual reality scenarios and, and then, you know, obviously spinning that out into kind of fantasy sci-fi things. But how does idolatry relate to virtual reality and maybe how does that help us to understand the issue as it's presenting itself to us in our uh, in our modern context uh, idolatry is virtual reality insofar as it's a it's a it's a falsehood that we uh, are working in that uh, we present or believe to be true um, now when we play say call of duty or something <laughs> you know most people know this is virtual this is not real <laughs> now i i've wondered about some people and <laughs> when it comes to their enthusiasm for what's going on and i've even uh you know sort of brushed up against presentations or or articles uh, that are you know actually propose that the virtual worlds that we're creating have the same kind of status as the physical world that we live in and dwell in um, so, but the, the thing about virtual reality is that in virtual uh, reality, as opposed to the natural world that we live in, we can create meaning. We are the sources uh, of meaning in that, in that world. We are the arbiters of what is and is not quote unquote real. Right. Right. And you have to have real reality to have meaning. So when, um, certain philosophers, uh, in later modernity, you know, I mentioned, you know, Nietzsche, but you know, you could talk about Hume, you could even talk about Kant, these other thinkers. What they did is they they more or less disenchanted the world, which is something that people talk about a lot. And what that what they're what they're getting at is that is that re, uh, the sort of the physical world has lost uh, not only you know sort of an animistic sort of. Uh, reality that's operating beneath the surface where we have spirits everywhere and gods and so forth. But even uh, at a more sort of uh, Christian level where we see that the things have meaning in so far as the, they're made in certain ways, uh, male and female as an example, but you know, it goes far beyond that. Uh, and they have ends. And the most important end, of course, in a Christian way of thinking is, you know, uh, our end in God, you know, we are made to glorify him and enjoy him forever, as we see in the shorter catechism, which, by the way, uh, is one of the great gifts <laughs> of our tradition to the larger church, that particularly that that first question and answer. But anyway, um, I think um, that uh, bit being lost has driven people, you know, you can't live without meaning. You know, uh, a life without meaning is not a life, <laughs> you know, so uh, people are, uh, uh, you know, on a quest for meaning. And if, if it is not, uh, you know, something that can be discovered in the world outside your head, then you create a world of meaning in your head. Now, and if we all work together, we kind of have a, you know, Tower of Babel approach to this whole thing. We can all say, well, Zach, you can have your meaning and I can have my meaning and we can all live in this sort of common world where we can all create our meanings. And that's, you know, a better life than the one in which we inhabit in this meaningless world. You can see that in the film, The Matrix, you know, reality is this sort of, you know, of course, in the film, just absolutely, you know, it's a wasteland because of all of the wars that have occurred. And virtual reality for those people is actually more stimulating and more, uh, you know, uh, pleasing than, you know, anything that's possible in the real world. But in a, in a, in a way, 
what we see in you know the matrix is a, a world that we've made for ourselves that's been taken over by the machines. Uh, but uh, we're doing the same thing in our world because we don't really think that there's anything to know outside our heads. It's all in here. There's nothing really out there. Nothing has meaning in itself. We go back to the three isms just to review naturalism, scientism, Gnosticism. The first, naturalism simply reduces everything to material considerations. If I fall in love, um, if I'm in love with my wife, it's because of a chemical response in my brain, and that's, that's it. The buck stops there. Scientism dictates, it's an epistemological kind of claim that scientific inquiry or investigation is the only means to know the material world of nature, and because everything's material, that's the only knowledge worth having anyway. So taken together with naturalism, scientism limits all real knowledge to scientific knowledge precisely because there is nothing beyond the material world. We've covered all that. But then Gnosticism. You and I uh, talked a little bit about Gnosticism the other week at the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference where I was visiting as an attendee. But Gnosticism is a good deal more interesting in that it provides the spiritual consolation and meaning that people need. You just said people need meaning in order to live. Without meaning, you'll just waste away or do something violent to end our torment. But Gnosticism is that palliative which comes in to provide that consolation. Unpack for us this whole Gnosticism thing. First, where does meaning come from in a Gnostic worldview or in, in this metaphysical commitment that we're calling Gnosticism? Uh, before I get to that, though, I, I want to uh, commend you for noting that violence is uh, inevitable uh, because consciousness is pain if there's no meaning in the world. Bertrand Russell, in a personal letter in the early 20th century, essentially said that very thing. He said, I can't see any reason for living. Here's an atheist, mathematician, brilliant man, and a philosopher. I can't see anything that would kind of motivate me to get out of bed except the elimination of consciousness. He wanted to kill as many people as possible to eliminate consciousness from the world. Of course, he didn't have the virtual reality that we have, and he wasn't a Gnostic. <laughs> so, <laughs> but getting back to Gnosticism, um, if you can't look outward or upward for meaning, if you can't find it in the world itself, the only place to look for it is where? Within. And that means that this is an... It, it, a, you know, an exercise in solipsism. You know, you, you look inside yourself to find meaning. You and and where do you go? Is it uh, to reason? Uh, well, reason can maybe uh, be some kind of uh, guide, but ultimately, you're looking for something that's almost preconscious. Uh, you're looking for something that's a kind of inner knowledge that just simply, uh, you know, you're able to apprehend almost in a, in the way that say. You know, mystics in the Middle Ages would refer to the beatific vision, kind of like, oh, <laughs> you know, I've, 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 I see it. I see the meaning of life. I'm a woman. <laughs> whatever, whatever, you know, whatever sort of wells up from within is is authentic and it's the true self. And, it, and it's secret knowledge. It's secret in the sense that it's not public knowledge. It's not simply out there in the world. And this is the this is what Gnosticism has always meant. Yeah, it's not, it's not a, a discovery. It's an invention masquerading as a discovery. 
Yeah, I think that that's true. But I think to the person who is a true devotee, it's a discovery. It's a sort of like, I've looked inward and I've uh, you know discovered my true self, this inner light, this little spark that doesn't go out, yada, 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 yada. You know, when you think about Gnosticism, the word Gnostic comes from gnosis, which means to know. So, you know, it's where we get agnostic, don't know, you know, not, gnosis is knowledge. But it's not the kind of knowledge that we were talking about with scientism. Uh, because science, you know, scientific knowledge is an observation of natural phenomena. Uh, in ancient Gnosticism, when you think about Valentinus and those guys, uh, the, the the physical world is irredeemable. Uh, the physical world is perhaps even the product of a malicious uh, intelligence who's captured us in a, these tombs of flesh. You know, I use this image in the in the talk where I said, you know, I think I did. If I haven't, I didn't. Uh, it, oh, I, I often do. It's like when you were a little kid, like when I was a kid, when kids used to go outside. You know, back in the day when kids were outside playing after dark without adults around. Ancient history. Uh, we would catch fireflies. You know, fireflies would come out right at dusk. And it was a cool idea uh, to, to uh, you know, get a mayonnaise jar and catch those boogers and put them, put them in that jar, get as many as you could, and then take them into your room and use them as a nightlight, you know, while you went to sleep. And then you'd wake up and they'd all be dead. <laughs> but the idea is, is that, you know, this malicious demiurge who created the physical world um, is not the creator of the true self. The true self uh, is either eternal uh, or the creation of a different God who is light and spirit and not you know, sort of tainted with any kind of material, you know, elements. Uh, and we see, obviously, in the Christian faith that you can't be a Gnostic and a Christian at the same time for a range of reasons, but not least being the incarnation. The incarnation was rejected by the Docetists uh, principally because they were Gnostics. <laughs> they, didn't re they didn't accept the physical body of Christ as being real. And we see the Apostle John addresses that, you know, in different ways uh, throughout his writings in the New Testament. But this idea that knowledge comes from within, it's so, is, is, it, it, it means that the knowledge of the true self is unchallengeable. You know, you have your truth, Zach. I've got my truth, right? Uh, you know, I'll let you be you and you let me be me. The only thing we need to do is kind of recognize each other's choices. Okay, you're a... You know, you're you're a cross between a tiger and a human being. I get it. You know, you and I'm you know I'm a, an alien from you know Mars or whatever. You know, Alpha Centauri. Uh, that my true self is that. And and we see this in many sort of interesting ways uh, throughout. You know, even popular culture. Scientology is very um, exam. I think a, a, a contemporary example of a very self-conscious Gnosticism. You know, I grew up in the Church of Scientology, so I know it from the, the inside. Uh, but that's a very self-conscious uh, approach. But I think uh, there's an unconscious Gnosticism that is pervasive in our society and has uh, uh, tinctured and, and sort of bled through the church. We have it everywhere in Christianity right now. And uh, most evangelicals are kind of uh, unconsciously Gnostic in many of their assumptions and how they do things. Great book, by the way, uh, to, that addresses this by a Jewish Gnostic and intellectualist, Harold Bloom's The American Religion. Harold Bloom is the literary critic and, um, you know, scholar who I think is still alive and is at, and is at Yale still. But anyway, uh, it's a good book and a good one to read. By the way, that book, ironically, that book 
uh, strongly influenced me in my my uh, transition to the Reformed faith. So, anyway, I could talk about that, but that but that's uh, that's uh, how Gnosticism works in this environment. One expression of Gnosticism, in terms of this, is a self-definitional kind of project. That's if we could put it that way. Gnosticism as self-definition, self quote unquote discovery, which is really just self-invention, um, sure. dressed up as discovery, but. Uh, one way that I've seen this in the church is not so much people saying, hey, you know, this is this is what I am or, or whatever, though there's certainly that, but this issue that I'm about to describe. Um, I once referred to a very popular figure who is ostensibly Christian. You know, he presents himself as a Christian pastor and preacher. Um, he's, in the, he's a prosperity gospel figure. That's about as specific as I'll get with that. I once said to a family member of mine um, who was joking around, you know, he said, wait, Zach, when you become a pastor, you get a, you can go on TV like him and you know, you could could do really well for yourself. And I said, yeah, but the thing is I'm a Christian. And, and, and then at that point the joke was over and the family member turned really dark and he's not a follower of this prosperity gospel figure. He said, who are you? Who are you to say he's not a Christian? If that's what he says he is, then that's what he is. Right, right. There it is. Right. Yeah, the, and this gets back to this, uh, this problem that we have with knowledge. If everything comes from within, uh, that means that ecclesial institutions, the history of the Christian faith, theology, all of these things are just a bunch of opinions, you know, and uh, they don't have any authority. So, you know, and, and you're, you're absolutely right when it comes to Gnosticism being you know, a kind of self-invention, you know, know, the process of inventing the self, this gets us back to idolatry. Uh, These, this is something that uh, human beings are, are constructing. There's no genuine discovery going on. This is just, they, they, they think a a real discovery has occurred, but they haven't. And this is where disillusionment comes back into to play here. And it comes to addressing the idols of our time. We need to, we need to cut down the oaks of naturalism, scientism, and Gnosticism, all three of those things. And your, your, your point about the family member, I think, is really good to keep in mind. Some of the resistance we're going to face, like in the early church, comes from people who call themselves Christians. So in the early church, there were, there were Gnostic Gospels. There were Gnostics who presented themselves as Christians. And it was a long, hard slog to uh, make sure that people, you know, understood the difference between a Gnostic way of thinking about Christ and, you know, what Christ truly, uh, who Christ truly is and what occurred in the incarnation. That was a long, hard slog. And I think we're going to, you know, we're facing the same challenge today in a different way. Uh, but it's it's with us. Uh, we we need to cut down those those idols. So we need to do it. Yes. But what are our tactics available to us? You know, we've covered the nature of the problem. We've covered the task at hand. So now, what are the tactics involved in executing the Boniface option, at least as you've conceived of it? Yeah, I think there is a two pronged approach. One has to do with naturalism and scientism, and then the other has to do with Gnosticism. Um, Gnosticism, I think, will fall, uh, uh, you know, uh, away, you know, it'll be less and less appealing if we can, uh, you know, uh, convincingly um, get people disillusioned about, 
you know, naturalism. So naturalism in our world today and Gnosticism uh, can work together because there's a kind of, uh, I guess, uh, turf sort of uh, keeping that each is able to observe. So with, with for example, contemporary Gnosticism, uh, it's possible to be at one and the same moment uh, transsexual, in other words, denying the reality of, your, of the, you know, your physical body's authority over your life, uh, and say something like, you know, follow the science when it comes to vaccines or global warming or whatever. Because in, in when, when we're talking about, you know, diseases and, you know, you know, climate, we're talking about things that are just happening. They're not meaningful in themselves. Uh, they're just realities that if, you know, we have to acknowledge and if we want to survive, we've got to kind of relate to or react to or respond to in some way. Whereas, uh, you know, when it comes to my identity as a, as a woman, if, if, if I'm biologically a man, that's something I can't be challenged scientifically because, you know, myself, my true self is this inner thing, you know, and the physical body that's outside of me is something that can be altered to sort of mirror my self-understanding. And we do that kind of thing a lot, you know, uh, in the physical world when we, when we build stuff. But now we're talking about kind of a dualism between the body and the spirit that, you know, is operative. And the true self is derived solely from that sort of inner spiritual uh, dimension to life. And uh, anyway, so if we, if we uh, can raise doubts about you know, the sufficiency of naturalism to explain reality. Sorry for those beeps. People are sending me messages on my computer. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, if we can raise doubts, about, you know, and you, you brought up a good one. Uh, it, I think you were referring to something I said in my talk. If uh, love, for example, which is something we all long for and have the capacity to, to demonstrate and, and exercise, if that's nothing but biochemistry, I mean, if it's really nothing but biochemistry, if there's no re reality uh, that we are participating in or, or uh, living out that is any, you know, is nothing more than just biochemical responses, then what's to keep us from just sort of, you know, drugging ourselves up uh, to be more loving uh, or to experience this feeling, you know, in an ongoing way? Uh, there really isn't any reason not to. Uh, that's the sort of thing that you can use to raise, you know, sort of the specter of doubt with, with a naturalist. You say, you know, you've got a girlfriend, you've got a boyfriend, a husband, a wife, a mother. Is that really all it is? It's just biochemistry. Now, nobody thinks that's all there is to it. You know, the, you know, only the most hardcore pigheaded person would sort of stick to his, his guns and say, no, that's all there is. And then that guy probably lives in his mother's basement, you know, <laughs> doesn't have any friends or just has, you know, friendships that are, you know, are, you know, people just, you know, with people just like him. But we can raise those questions. We can, we can, you know, create doubt. Um, when it comes to science, science, I think that's a little trickier because we don't want to call into question the, you know, I think what's valid in the scientific method, but we, I think, uh, can at least get people to say science has its limitations. There are things that it's good for and things that it's not good for. And we can't really, uh, just order our world scientifically because we need morality, uh, to justify even science itself and the, and the expenditures that we invest in, you know, the various, you know, uh, 
you know, research institutions that, that help us to understand the world better. Gnosticism, again, is a radically individuating, uh, you know, sort of uh, belief. Uh, there really is no uh, sort of communal sort of dimension to it, except this kind of weird, you play along with my fantasies if I play along with yours, you know, and is that really what, what we want to, 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 you know, sort of promote or is that really, uh, is it really anywhere anybody really wants to live? I suspect not. And I think that we can make, you know, press on that. And I think if, if we think about these things more thoroughly, more deeply, and if more people get involved with sort of this work of, you know, exercising the Boniface option, there'll be all sorts of things that I can't sort of dream up or think up that other people will come up with and hopefully will prove to be very useful in disillusioning people. And when, once people are disillusioned, then we can present the truth of the gospel to them. You know, over the past 15 years, the cascading madness of our culture, um, if, if there's one word I can slap on it in terms of thinking about the Boniface option, it's this occasionalism. It's like every single time some weird thing develops and becomes mainstream, I, I think, man, I didn't see that coming. That wasn't on my bingo card for this year. You know, that's, that's a popular statement. And, and it's true. You have these occasions and they're going to increase in frequency and increase in absurdity as we go on. And, and that's why the Boniface option, as you said, is an occasional kind of thing. Like you, you have to, you have to come up with discrete tactics, but they're all coming back to these common concerns of addressing, at least in our present moment, the, the, the kind of tri idolatry of naturalism, scientism, and Gnosticism. And and we can rejoice as believers in, uh, in the God of the Word and in the Word of God, that Christ is supreme and preeminent over all these things. And as I just read from a uh, Greenville grad today, Stephen Spinoweber, writing for Ref 21 about uh, the, the San Francisco Gay Man's Choir and their whole We Will Convert Your Children thing, kind of a couple months ago, but, but Stephen is reflecting on that. He said, you yeah, know, this didn't surprise God. Yeah, it shocked right. us. It awed us. But this didn't surprise God, and Christ is supreme and preeminent over this. If I can put this issue in my own words, it's uh, we often talk about the Benedict Option, talk about shelf life of the institutions we're building. But why don't we talk about the shelf life of uh, the heresies that are running amok in the world today, the shelf life of Satan's influence and, and the enemy's agenda, the shelf life of human madness and sorrow and torment, because there is coming a time for those of us who trust in Christ when every tear will be wiped away and, and when Christ will be beheld by all the world in the fullness of his glory. And we have a great hope um, in, in that beatific vision as believers. Um, Chris, thank you for your time. I do want to mention, uh, I mentioned a number of your books earlier on the podcast. You have a book coming out soon from Canon Press on Tom Bombadil. I'm excited to read that. Um, I just got done reading through Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion recently. So Tom Bombadil is on my mind and I'm excited for that book. Also, um, I want to say to our listeners, if you've enjoyed this conversation uh, there is much more to be had uh, with Chris Wiley anyway. If you, if you are interested, I encourage you to tune into the Theology Pugcast. 
I got to sit in on a live recording of the Theology Pugcast with special guest George Grant um, uh, last week. And I really enjoyed their conversation focusing on Gnosticism, uh, which we discussed at some length today as well. And so it's, uh, it's three guys and three microphones, and they just talk about stuff. But it's, it's three guys who are interesting to listen to, and Chris is one of them. Uh, brother, thank you so much for joining me. I've really enjoyed this. Hey, thanks, Zach. I really enjoyed it, too. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. donate For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.